Welcome back to Plenary Session, Malignant Book Club edition. This is the Malignant Book Club. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy, it's great to see you again. Great to see you, Vinay. How are you? I'm doing well. This time we're not in the Swiss Alps. This isn't the Swiss Alps edition. This is the cool San Francisco Bay Area edition. First, congratulations for your new headquarters. That's oh, the headquarters. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the Plenary Session headquarters is a work in progress. People don't know, but it's really, it's really pieced together with scotch tape and a little bit of lighting deception. So it's good to have you on this side of the table. It's good to talk about Malignant, the book. This is uh, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. And where do we leave off in this book club discussion? So I think it's the fourth episode uh, today. Mm -hmm. So we leave off at the middle part of the conflict of interest part. Uh, that was, um, I think, a very important part of the book even if some may disagree with that. Yeah. And we talk about that uh, during the last episode. Even though. So today we will be... Some haters. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be finishing yeah. this part. Yeah. And, um, and another chapter, chapter eight, about precision oncology. And then the second part of the book will be, will be closed. And next episode we'll speak about the third part of the book um, about medical evidence and trial design. And my third part is my favorite part. It's my favorite part also. It's my favorite chapter part. Chapter 10. Yeah, chapter 10, yeah. chapter, chapter um, 11, 12. Okay, so let's pick up here, financial conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, the feedback I was telling you somebody said to me was they said that, you know, the book's great, but you don't need that second part. You don't need the financial. And then I said, you know, that's the real key part. I don't know. Why is it key? Because to really understand how a system could permit this kind of deviation from common sense and medical evidence, you need to see how the money flows because that's the root motivation for why it deviates from, I think, what's really in the patient's best interest. All right, you have questions. I've not had the chance to see these questions. I'm going in blind. Yeah, Let's do so it. it's a single blind. We could single blind <laughs> study. <laughs> single, single blind. Yeah, yeah, single blind. So basically, last time we saw the rate, how often it was, uh, how often, for instance, uh, um, in the NCC, NCCN guidelines, mm -hmm. uh, expert, how often they were conflicted, how often doctors were conflicted. So today we will see why it is important. Do, do conflict have an impact on the decision we are making? Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, the, the main uh, story of this chapter. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, you start by um, talking about study that uh, try to estimate for each dollar spent by the industry, what could be the impact, of, for instance, on prescription drugs? Yes, I think... Um, <clears throat> There are a number of studies in this vein, and I think I put them in a few buckets. Is there evidence that money to physicians change prescribing patterns? And I think the answer is yes. Is there evidence that money to physicians affects editorial decisions and editorial spin? I think the answer is yes. Is there evidence that money affects the design and conduct of the clinical study? I think the answer is yes. And in these respects, I think money is different than other biases. You know, everyone always says to me, there are lots of biases. You know, the biggest bias is that everyone wants to make a name for themselves. You know, they always say that. Everyone wants to make a name for yourself. I was like, well, you could make a name for yourself as the person who, you know, brought sell an excerpt to the market, but you can also make a name for yourself, as some have, as the person who smashed sell an excerpt on the rocks, like Aaron Goodman. I mean, I think part of his reputation is he's the guy who thinks sell an is trash. And he's right. I mean, he happens to be right. Um, so you know, we can have all these biases, but our biases unidirectional. And the thing about money is it's unidirectional in the sense that you only make money from selling product. Aaron Goodman, he can't find a way to turn his bashing of selling XOR into money. Um, but if he was a cheerleader for selling XOR, he could find a way to turn it into money. He could, you know, work hand in glove with uh, Carrier Farm Pharmaceutical. Now, I'm not sure exactly the study that I cited many years ago when I wrote the book, but I think it has something to do with for every X amount of money given yeah, to doctors, yeah. one prescription is changed. I, I think one important point you are making, and, and this is the core concept, is yeah. uh, why the industry would uh, spend this money. <coughs> they, they, they are not spending this money uh, into direct payment to, for, to doctors just like that. It's because there is an impact, and this has been quantified in many studies, as, as you said. Um, in some studies, you see that uh, for this amount of, maybe for, for Ten thousand uh, dollars, <coughs> you can have uh, this higher prescription for in the three following months. Yeah, and you have many many examples like that. So yeah. this is just a yeah. proof. And even one meal, one meal can affect. If you are offered a meal, this can affect your prescription. So everything you will uh, receive from the industry can affect your prescription. 
Absolutely. And I think that's like, that's, that's been shown in a number of studies. And that's different than other biases that don't have the evidence base of financial conflict of interest as a bias. Financial conflict of interest is, is a bias the way smoking is a carcinogen. There are other carcinogens. I'm sure that there are lots of other carcinogens out there. But smoking is just a well-demonstrated carcinogen, and financial conflict is a well-demonstrated link to bias. Um, it's a great return on investment. I mean, you, I, you're, you're buying off doctors cheap. I just give an example yeah. you, you, you provide here. For every $13 paid, this led f to three months more prescription is to by Fleischmann and uh, colleagues in yes, 2016. Mm -hmm. So, and, and many, many other examples like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, you, you'd be a fool to think that a very uh, uh, smart and clever biopharmaceutical industry is doing this for charity. It's not a charity. It's a return on investment. And they get great return on investment. They get return on investment when they detail the doctors writing the prescriptions. But more, most of the chapter is concerned, I'm concerned with, not the average doctor writing one Revlimid at a time. I'm concerned with the doctors who are writing the guidelines on when to give Revlimid. The doctors who are deciding what clinical trials to run in the cooperative groups and how to run the studies and when to uh, unblind everyone and cross everyone over as what happened with the uh, Revlimid uh, smoldering myeloma study. The moment they had a PFS benefit, they were supposed to run that study for OS, which is the important endpoint when you treat early. We'll talk about, I think, chapter 10. Yeah. But they crossed everyone over. So what happens when you have an ecosystem where all the doctors are conflicted? They may even do decisions that harm patients' knowledge, uh, as happened in that case. Now, I can't prove that the financial conflict led to them make that decision, but it doesn't help. And in fact, in aggregate, you can prove that decisions are influenced by the money. Now, another question. Yeah. What we do... So we know there are conflict of interest in medicine. We saw that in the previous chapter. What we do about conflict of interest? Is it recognized as, as problematic? What, what are the rules? Um, you compare this with politics in uh, this chapter, but yeah. maybe we won't have to, to do that. But what we do, what is the rule? I mean, I think that the only thing society has been willing to do, American society more than European society, is disclosure and transparency to put sunshine on it. In the United States, we have the Sunshine Clause, which is a part of the Affordable Care Act, which says that anybody who is a doctor who bills Medicare and also receives money from a for-profit company that sells a drug or device has to have those payments logged in a system by the drug and device company. Now, there are errors in there, of course, because people have things wrongly attributed to their name, and also payments go there that are missed from the system. There's also the fact that the companies can pass the money through one of these predatory publication outlets or these uh, CME activities that is a thin veneer um, for independence, which is no such thing. It is just the company passing the money through and giving it to the doctor. That's not coded in the system. This is disclosure, uh, sunshine. It's considered by many to be, you know, the least you could do about a problem. And then there are other steps from that. One is, I think, recusal beyond a certain amount of money, you are no longer allowed to do some things. And for many years, the New England Journal of Medicine had a policy that if you took more $10,000 per annum from one company, you are not eligible to be the editorialist for that company or its rival company's products. So you are recused from that. Now, we published a paper, I believe, I believe I published this with Victoria Kaysner, yeah. where we found that that rule was violated a few yeah. times. Yeah. Um, that was many years ago. Uh, uh, that's called the de minimis rule. Now, why $10,000? You know, they pulled that out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, it's arbitrary, but beyond 10,000, I think we can all agree we're talking about real money. But I think for most Americans, even less than 10,000, 5,000, that's real money. And these are payments given to doctors, not to the university. Here we're talking exclusively about general payments yeah. to the doctor's purse, um, the doctor's wallet. Uh, and these payments are made in addition to the salary, typically good salary, they earn from working. Um, in Europe, there's no transparency at all. People have to voluntarily disclose. But I don't know how much money people are getting. In the U.S., there is this sunshine clause. No one, uh, besides a handful of instances, fight for a recusal. And then the best thing you could do about it is to have an ethos or a system where we really go separate ways, which is that, look, you can work for the company in this world. You're free to do that. You can go work for Merck and get stock options. Or you can be the academic who works on ECOG designing the studies in which and, and writing the guidelines, in which case maybe... You shouldn't be the person who's also taking money from Merck. And then the last point I'll make is, if you work for Merck, the rule is stricter for you yeah. than it is for me yeah. at UCSF. Because if you work for Merck, you can't take money from Pfizer. They're not going to yeah. like that. Yeah. But a university professor can take money from everybody, every single company. And that's ridiculous. There's a thing that I think it's important also. Um, 
this money uh, doctors are receiving direct payment, it's not publicized. Example. And as an example, when uh, people give a lecture, for instance, in ASCO, they have to disclose a financial conflict of interest mm -hmm. at the beginning of the talk. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Because you published a study and oh, it yeah. was very interesting. <clears throat> um, how fast this is um, uh, presented yeah. and maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, so I, I think remember, it's interesting think... because it's, it's also, um, you know, kind of uh, a false, false sense of we are disclosing, but uh, actually we are not really disclosing if we don't have the time to read the disclosure. Yeah, so um, I think it was 2014, 2015, I was at ASCO and I say, and then they're like, uh, oh, the next talk is going to be uh, a phase one, two study, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, thank you for, I'd like to thank the conference organization. I'd like to thank the, uh, these, are, these are my disclosures here. And the slide is gone. I was like, whoa. And then I saw the whole slide is just full of text. These are my disclosures. And it's gone. And uh, so I asked Aaron Boothby, who was, uh, I think at the time, a third-year medical student. I think now the good Dr. Boothby is a first-year fellow at Fred Hutch, Seattle, Washington. And he's a, a very smart kid. Some very smart physician now he's a doctor he's all he's all he's on his own now um so he uh came to me looking for a project i thought this project was well suited for him he downloaded the videos of hundreds of these kind of presentations from asco educational sessions and also uh research sessions he downloaded the 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 video of oral presenters um he timed how long the slide was up and i think there is some bare minimum time that they had yeah, at the time. that's some metric i think uh, in one, in one second, you can you can read four words, oh, and, and, and you were very permissive. <clears throat> there, yeah. So so he timed how long the slide was up. He counted how many words on the slide, so he can say basically, in order to read this slide, you need to read X words per, per minute or X words per second. And we know from the published literature that people who proofread, people who read, people who are really fast readers, that the fastest the average person might read is four words per second. In fact, that's like really good. Most of us don't even read four words per second. Actually, most of us don't read at all. But few of us who do read, we don't read, we don't read four words per second. Okay, it's pretty fast. So we're asking a very simple question, which is how many slides were flashed at a rate faster than the average super reader can read? And the answer was, if I recall, that 38%. Yeah, absolutely. 38%. Yeah. Well, 40% of these were flashed so damn fast, you couldn't even read it if you were a speed reader. Now, what does that mean to me? It means that this is a token gesture. Oh, yeah, we have to disclose that uh, all these people, you know, they're giving us such a hard time. So here you go. Here's your disclosure. Boom, it's gone. Okay, now we're going to talk about, you know, the spin cycle. Um, that, to me is unfair it's really not in the spirit of things yeah so on that positive note that what are what are the solutions i, I, think, I do I think, think though they fixed this problem didn't okay they? okay no no i think asco actually read our paper as published in jama oncology okay. and i think that they have now uh, somebody told me you know the, the timer on it is like it really makes it sit up there for a long time because they're they you know because of my paper mm. uh because of boothby's paper um but that's not the real solution i mean so yeah, yeah when it comes to solution I think it was important first to, to, to see the problems because the solution can be seen as a pretty drastic, but yeah. can you maybe explain what, what, would, what would be your solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different levels of solution you could choose from. You could choose, I think, the current status quo, which is doing almost nothing at all and might even be worse than doing nothing because we absolve our conscience and don't solve the bias problem. And in fact, a number of studies, including studies by, I think, Saw from NYU Business School, show that disclosure leads to a false sense of trust in the person who's disclosed, yeah, even that. when they go on to perpetuate the biased statements. So I think disclosure is not a great solution. That's the status quo. What we're doing might be work worse than nothing at all. Okay, you could go to level one. We're going to do some things. You could go to level two. We're going to do other things. And you can go to like, you know, what I think the world should be. Level three, we're going to do a lot. We could talk about the different levels. I think Vincent Raj Kumar and I once wrote sort of a level one, you know, some common sense, basic things that we could all do that would be an improvement. Um, I want to defend for a little bit what I think the absolute position should be, which is it should be, um, you know, I hate to say it, but <clears throat> there's no reason that a doctor, and by the way, the majority of academic hematology oncology doctors in this country, the, the most lowly paid instructor is probably making three times the average household income, you know, in America. That's the most lowly paid. Mm. And the average doctor is probably making four or five times the average household mm. income. And some of these people who are very senior, ironically, the ones with the most payments, 
they're making you know many many times more than the average household income now i know you live in an expensive city i know san francisco i know all these places are expensive i know every there's not a single person i think no matter how wealthy they are who doesn't think it would be nice to have a little bit more money mm. i mean i think money is this kind of thing at least in in the ballpark that we all live in maybe if you're a hundred billionaire it doesn't matter i don't know i couldn't imagine that but most people want more money so i i get that you want more money i get that you feel like you're underpaid i get that you feel like if i worked for farm i would be paid better i get all those things but i think you have to make choices in life. And if your choice is you want to be the impartial arbiter of what's best for patients, you cannot, cannot take money from for-profit entities with unidirectional interests. And I'm not saying you can't find other ways to make money. You know, you can't, I don't know, take up woodworking or I don't know, you can't be a piano player. And I'm not saying it's not about making money per se. It's that this particular type of financial arrangement where you are getting money from certain companies that only profit from doing one thing and not the other, that is a very, very problematic arrangement if your core job is to impartially assess products. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I will I will push back. Make the the usual pushback and okay. I know what you will be answering <clears throat> to that. But uh, do you mean we have uh, it's forbidden to talk to the industry, to work with the industry. W what does it mean? And do you, do, you, do you speak about direct payment and also research payment? Maybe this distinction is important. Yes, absolutely. So I think uh, the straw man people say is that, oh, if we can't talk to pharma, we can't collaborate. Uh, you and I must have published 10 or 20 papers together. You never cut me a check for $10,000. Yeah, know? that's right. You know, uh, you, you can talk to people. I talk, everybody uh, uh, I talk In to. the book, you said you even don't know if you get a coffee. I think I, I give you a coffee. Yeah, I think you probably <laughs> bought me a coffee over the years. <laughs> you probably did buy me a coffee. I think I bought you a coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah we Absolutely. bought each other coffee. So that's our financial disclosure. But my point is that actually most of the medical, most of the people I've co-authored papers with, the first author in these papers, I don't think I bought them coffee. I don't think they bought me coffee. Especially in Russian. That's, that's what you wrote. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they didn't even buy me coffee. No offense. I'm not looking for coffee. Okay. No, you know, no, I have no. plenty of coffee. But my point is that, one, it is factually untrue that you have to exchange money to work together. We have worked together. You work with your students. You work with your colleagues. You are not exchanging money with everybody you work together. It's possible to just work together with people. Okay. It's possible. And second of all, I understand that in the current ecosystem, in the last part of the book, we'll talk about how to shift some of these things, but in the current ecosystem, the bulk way in which we fund trials is the, the company gives money to the university, and the university uses that money to run the trial. I am not saying stop that. I'm saying that in addition to that, the, the company has an ad board. The ad board is in a swanky hotel in swanky city. The ad board flies everyone there, business class maybe. The ad board puts them up for a very nice dinner. The ad board gives them a check for $2,000, $5,000, $1,000, $6,000, $7,000. You can look up the payments, you know? And my point is that you don't need to take that $5,000. You can still you know, meet with them at ASCO. You can still have a Zoom call with them. You can still get money in your research account and use that money to run the trial. You can still work with them and talk to them and be their friend. They don't have to give you the check for your personal bank account for $5,000. That's not necessary. Did you ever give a lecture to the pharma? Oh, it's hot under these lights. <laughs> yeah, but I think I maybe mentioned the book. I have given one, two, three, four, five. I mean, I've given multiple lectures at major uh, top 10, top 20 biopharmaceutical firms. Some on Zoom, unfortunately, because of this hellhole we live in, this hellhole of Zoom. Um, but some in person before. And the one I went in person, not only did I not take their money, you know, to give the talk. Yeah, uh, about the coffee. Yeah, I, I took my own coffee in my own thermos. You know, I packed coffee so that I wouldn't have to accept their coffee and have that payment added to me. Now, what's my point here? My point here is that... Um, you know, and also why are they asking me to talk? They're asking me to talk because I had published, you know, a couple hundred papers and their papers about drug development and how you can think about drug development and places that we might have some areas of mutual interest, um, which, which I think we do, which is that I want more drugs to be developed that work. And so do they. Um, uh, and, and so it was a fruitful dialogue and I had meetings with lots of people who work at these companies and, um, you know, I have a different point of view on a lot of issues and I know how to think about data in different ways than most people think. And so I think, you know, there was some value to them. But, you know, again, I'm not, I didn't take a check for, I'm sure I could have gotten them to give me some check. I didn't need that check because I have a job and that check would put me in a forever impossible position, um, which is how am I going to uh, f fairly criticize their products and fairly give them credit where credit is due, which I do as well on the channel. Mm. Um, there was something recently. Those starting matter. 
Dostarlamab. Yeah, I gave credit to Dostarlamab. And the original Pfizer vaccine. I gave credit and I ran to get the first dose in my arm, you know? So for me to be able to give credit to Pfizer for the Pfizer vaccine, for me to be able to credit to the makers of Dostarlamab, and actually I forget which company makes, I forget. Oh, sorry, I don't know. I forget I either. Um, I think Isai, maybe, Japanese company? No, maybe, I don't know. Uh, whoever makes Dostarlamab, you know, I need to be impartial, you know, so I can say Dostarlamab good and uh, shine garbage, you know, and shine is garbage, you know, so um, yeah. Yeah, I think, in other words, your, your point, your solution would be that doctors should not <coughs> receive direct payment from the industry, right? Yeah. And you you detail some points in details, but that's uh, that's, that's part of the summary. core yeah, solution. Yeah. The things that Vincent and I have talked about is uh, to set limits on it and to recuse yourself from NCCN and, and editorials if you do, uh, you know, because I don't think he's where I am. Um, and so that's a compromise. I'm happy to take a compromise because I'd rather have half a loaf of bread than no loaf at all. And to me, I do think there's a generation of oncologists that is too far gone. These KOLs who are very old, you know, who are senior. I don't want to say old. They're not always old. But typically, I'm talking about people who've worked in oncology for more than 20 years as a PI. And if you work for more than 20 years and you're typically earning over $100,000 per year, it's going to be very difficult to get this person uh, unaddicted to the product. Mm. Um, but my focus is more on the junior people. Mm. I see junior people all the time. They come. They say that they care about patients. I know they do. They say, they say they care about uh, things that people didn't care about before. Disparity, equity. They care about these things, which are so important and so unfair in cancer. They care about disparity, equity. They care about the vulnerable patients. They care about uh, palliative care, early palliative care. They care about all these really important things. And they are also taking $20,000, $30,000 from AstraZeneca, $30,000 from these companies. You don't need to start down that road. You can, you can stop. You can care about these things and not become addicted because you can't really do yeah. both well, I think. I think it's going to your last point of the chapter, mm -hmm. and, and that's good you are talking about that. You, the, the, the title is, There Aren't Bad People. Yeah. And you are, you are talking about the system more than re people and people and people. So maybe the culture and the system has to be reformed. Yeah. I think this will be <coughs> very difficult, honestly, because uh, there's so much money at stake. But... Um, How do you want to conclude this uh, chapter? I, mean, I think it's a very important chapter. Those two chapters are very important because they are explaining all the pitfalls, flows that we will be describing in details in, in other chapters because there's so much money at stake. I mean, so much money. I know. I mean, I think, you know, when you and I talk, we always talk about like the reason that it's so hard to fix some of these problems, the reason that, you know, They run the trial. The control arm is clearly not what they would give their own mother. We point that out online. And then the first thing is rationalizing excuses, you know. Oh, well, you know, the place they ran this trial, you know, they don't have access to those drugs. I was like, yeah, I know. But they're doing this trial there to get regular approval here. And the moment the trial finishes there, they don't keep giving those drugs there. And Mani has proven some of these things in a recent paper. Yeah, very that, good right, paper. That, yeah. That, 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 that those drugs are not even approved in those countries yeah. that they have preyed upon predatorized you know they've attacked they've really taken they've exploited that country yeah. and then you mean to tell me that the person whose job is help equity and 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 fairness global fairness they are taking money from the company that just exploited all these mm. global sites mm. unbelievable to me and i guess what i want to say is i do think people are good like it's not and every single person who's participating in this system they believe their actions are justifiable it's what my teacher did it's what my mentor did it's okay to do this it's for the greater good it's for bringing drugs to patients it's justified what i'm trying to say is that even when you believe your heart is gold you can end up in a system that does a lot of bad to you know to a lot of people and you know that's what i mean the lesson of so many structural biases is in in the world is that a lot of good people participated in the system where, you know, unrelated, but, you know, we incarcerated a lot of people for carrying trivial amounts of marijuana on them. That wasn't a good policy. Now, was every single person involved in that evil? No, a lot of people were caught up following rules that other people created. Mm. And the whole system had to be broken. And it's still not fully fixed, but, you know, at least people are starting to recognize that it's a problem. Similarly, in oncology, the, the problem is that we are developing drugs that help people. Some are great. Some are modest and some are marginal, um, but all of these products, and somewhat irrespective of how good they are, can earn billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they reallocate capital from lots of people to very few people. And the moment you have a system with reallocates so much capital, it will be preyed upon, it will be taken advantage of. And as a doctor, 
the least you should try, you know, you should aspire to not making the problem worse and trying to make the problem better. I will ask you a last question of this topic. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit in the same, uh, same spirit, but are you optimist about the evolution of this? Or, and what would be the, the next step, for instance? What would be the next step? It's <coughs> a big because, question. Because we are speaking about conflict of interest and the impact and how it can influence outcomes in trials since maybe two, one, two, three decades. I yeah, mean, we, decades. we know this problem since long. Yeah. Um, I guess like so many people who uh, see problems for which there are solutions, I, I wax between being incredibly optimistic and incredibly pessimistic. I think I go the spectrum. Now, um, I think um, uh, one thing that gives me a lot of optimism is we, I know there's a lots of junior people who are fans of this show. And they're fans of yeah. the, and they're fans of this work, and then and they're doing some of this work their own, and they're carrying the torch in different ways. Um, and I'm in touch with a lot of them, and privately they agree with a lot of these points. And so I do think that there's going to be a new generation of people with a higher fraction of people who are attuned to these issues. Mm. Um, and that's one of the legacies of the book. That's a good legacy. So yeah. I think that's positive. Now I will say, there are places where I disagree with even the junior people. Um, I think a lot of the junior people believe that uh, they will be able to build a name for themselves in oncology in the traditional way, running trials in some tumor type or the other, um, and doing so in a more ethical way, making pushing insofar as they can for better control arms, better post-protocol care, you know, m no misuse of crossover, etc. And then once they get to a position of prominence, they'll be able to try to further encourage better trials. That's their view. I see. And I, I wish them the best in this goal, but that's not my view of how you're going to solve the problem. I think that... Um, we will, you know, you're, you're just going to be sort of dabbling around the edges in this way. And if you really want to solve the problem, uh, I think it's going to require political action, congressional action, and that medicine is no longer at the point where the profession can self-regulate. And I guess that's the dispute. The dispute is mm. the people who are in the field, do we believe the profession can correct itself as mm. professions are meant mm. to do? Mm. Um, and I think if it weren't for the Sunshine Clause and the Affordable Care Act, there would never have been a sunshine clock. Yeah, Proof yeah, of that yeah, is it doesn't yeah, happen in yeah, Europe. Yeah. Okay. So what did it take? It I took see. Chuck Grassley and it took, you know, who's a Republican, by the way, who, who on the one issue of sunshine is very progressive. It, it took Grassley. He didn't, he didn't like government waste and he helped push that into, into law. What will I think the next steps is? I think, I think it's not too hard to believe that uh, once we get to <clears throat> one quarter of GDP spent on healthcare, catastrophic spending on healthcare, once we get to the new generation of the aducanumabs, aducanumab 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. We are not far. We're not far. Yeah. Once we get to this kind of horrific spending, people seeing their tax money just shoveled into wheelbarrows and taken to rich people's houses and dumped in exchange for products that don't work, when we see more and more of this, there will be a public outcry that yeah. says, my, 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 my wages are not going up. Coming from people. From people. Yeah. My premiums are not going up. You bastards are not giving me a fair shake. You're taking all my money to pay for healthcare that doesn't make me healthier because it doesn't even work because you're powering for endpoints that are trivial, etc. And then that pressure will be put on Congress people. And I think the simple ways in which they'll be able to um, get a quick fix is to, I think the easy one would be, anybody who bills Medicare, we will ban you from personal financial payments from companies that bill Medicare as well. The same thing that's in Sunshine Act, except pff, it's banned. Mm. And, and I think they will take that action. I think they will take NCCN, which is a compendia, which we'll mm, talk about, yeah. and they'll pull it out. I think they'll take some of these actions. And what I'm suggesting is that some of their actions will have unintended consequences. You may not like all their actions. Uh, if you want to avert that, you best fix the problem yourself. But, mm. the, but as we see, year mm. after year, mm. they, uh, you know, the professional societies don't fix the They don't want to mm. fix it. And the, the less and less you want to fix it from within the profession, the more and more you will invite a heavy-handed yeah. political yeah. action against you. I see. And that's what I think okay. will happen. So thank you for your thoughts about this uh, very important topic and um, we'll uh, continue with the last chapter of this part. <coughs> I don't remember the, the, the name of the part. It's so so societal the force. So the social forces that shape yeah. medicine or something. Yeah. 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 Um, so shape cancer medicine. The Section two. Section two. The, the last <coughs> chapter is about, um, it's called precision. Will Precision Oncology Save Us? Yeah, yeah. And at the introduction, I think it's very interesting because you recall the, the, <coughs> the example of 
intensity of chemotherapy that was uh, the kind of paradigm for some years, maybe some decades, and there was some pushback. You give the example at the introduction of the book. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we are in another paradigm, maybe you can talk about it, and maybe the definition of precision oncology, you made some work. Uh, at the time of the book, uh, the recent work with Audrey Tran was not published, but ah, I think it's yeah. a very interesting Maybe we can talk about also yeah, the so definition. What is precision oncology? What is personalized medicine? Yeah, the different definition. Can you talk about that? So one thing I think that listeners should know is that um, this issue has diffused a little bit in the last few years. But when the book was written in 2018, it was at fever pitch. I mean, the mantra of precision oncology was all you heard about, which is that it is only a matter of time before which we sequence everybody who has cancer and each individual person will get an individual combination of drugs like a lock and key, which will, you know, make their cancer shrink and never come back. Like this perfect magic solution. And um, I think that's the sort of motivating spirit, but it's meant many things. Um, <clears throat> one thing precision oncology means is uh, among all the people who present with a new diagnosis of advanced or metastatic cancer, how many of those people are eligible for a treatment that is guided based on sequencing, where you look for an ALK rearrangement, you drug it if you have it, if you have non-small cell lung cancer, for instance. Um, and the answer to that was maybe, you know, five years ago, nobody knew. People talked as if it will be everybody someday. And then finally, in a couple of papers, one by John Markhart um, and myself in JAMA Oncology in 2018, a follow-up with Allison Haslam yeah. and myself in the Annals of Oncology in 2020, um, you know, we showed that it was 8-point-some percent, went up to like 10-point-some percent or 12-point-some percent. Um, it's the paucity. And this was people eligible for. Eligible for. So in other words, based on the frequency with which tumors occur and the frequency with which mutations occur within those tumors and the FDA package approvals to date, you know, we're talking about 1 in 10. People are even eligible. And in contrast, um, checkpoint inhibitors was 4 out of 10. And cytotoxics were 8 out of 10. So precision, or at least genomic therapy, uh, only even affected a tiny fraction of cancer patients with advanced or metastatic disease. And in the adjuvant setting, it was even less. And also there's a distinction between, for instance, in this paper, in this work, you studied how many patients were eligible for FDA-approved therapy. And another definition of yeah. precision oncology is uh, the goal would be to <coughs> sequence every patient and even beyond FDA-approved drug, could you match patient with the drug, with the mutation, and what would be the, the outcome? Yeah, so I think like the first thing is like FDA-approved genomic, and in fact, if anything, that's the place where there's greatest validation. But recently, Allison and I did another follow-up paper where we asked how many of those have shown an overall survival benefit and it was very, very few, they're mostly approved on the basis of response rate. Now, I have no doubt that a drug like electinib, uh, well, I actually, uh, I have no doubt that, a, um, that some of these targeted drugs uh, improve overall survival. Sure, I mean, absolutely the case. ALK drugs and lung cancer and EGFR drugs, et cetera. But some drugs, I genuinely wonder, you know, uh, Dabtram in, B in uh, BRAF V600 lung cancer, I don't know. Do you really need it up front? Could you give it third line and get the same effect? We don't know. We don't have randomized data. Um, some of these are rather modest drugs. Um, so my point there is that they're not all these miraculous home runs. Um, the other point is that beyond the approved options, there's this new mantra, molecular tumor boards. You take somebody whose cancer has progressed on many lines of therapy, and you put them in a molecular tumor board. They sequence them, proteome them whatever ohm them, ohm, ohm, ohm. And maybe they say ohm a few times on top of, they get the biome and, and say ohm. Omics. Omics. And then they come up with some personalized cocktail, a little pazopinib for you, a little tavozinib for you, a little pembro, axi for you, whatever. They come up with some cocktail. And that strategy was to some degree validated by regulators when CMS decided to pay for Foundation Medicine F1CDX in every single patient with advanced or metastatic cancer at least once, but it was always an unproven strategy. And, you know, I've published articles in the Annals of Oncology calling for a randomized controlled trial testing whether or not everybody needs to be sequenced or whether or not sequencing can be used more sparingly, which is the standard of care as I see it. Um, and that to me is the most unproven part of precision oncology. Um, I want to make one more point. Yeah. <clears throat> what is personalized medicine with precision medicine? Yeah, yeah. We used to call this personalized oncology, but then Harold Varmus made a really interesting point, which is that medicine has always been personalized. When his father was dying, the doctor, he didn't come up with a treatment for anybody. It was for his father. 
based on his father, how tall he was, what he weighed, how he could tolerate medicines, his kidney function. We've always personalized medicine with the exception of boosters, but with the, exce <laughs> with the exception of boosters, which has to be one size fits all. Well, in oncology, in oncology, oncology yeah, boosters. Yeah. Right. We've always personalized medicine, but precision presumably means you're personalizing on the basis of molecular characteristics and our omics. Yeah, fair point. Uh, so pre personalized medicine, precision oncology, and so these terms are, are growingly used. Um, <coughs> Oh, you want to talk about that paper we wrote about definition changing? Yeah, with Audrey. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So, I mean, originally it was an idea that Robert Peter Gale and I yeah. um, had, Post, yeah. and we wrote in the ASCO Post. And then later, Audrey Tran, who is a terrific medical student, worked with me, and she uh, solidified the idea, took it further. But basically, the idea was simple. If you take the biomedical literature and you sample the term precision oncology in different time periods, and then you code, what do the authors mean by precision oncology? What happens? And the answer is precision oncology, the vernacular, the term has undergone clonal evolution, just like a cancer cell in circa 2005 to 2010, it was seldom used. And when it was used, people said things like Gleevec or Erlotinib and EGFR mutant lung cancer were Bevacizumab, Bevacizumab was even precision oncology, yeah. some targeted drug. Yeah. But then you sample in the next period of time and it means things like where you drug, you look for alkyl rearrangement and if and only if it's present, you give it. That was what it meant. I think the second part was uh, mostly the FDA-approved drug. EGFR in lung, ALK in lung. Yeah, and that's the FDA-approved one. And then the, the most recent meaning of it is you take someone's tumor and you grow it in fly avatars and you drug all the flies. Which fly responds, you give it to the person. Or you sequence everything and you come with a, a unique combo. What, what we call agnostic. Uh, yeah, tissue agnostic. Yeah, tissue, kind of tissue yeah. agnostic, yeah. And, 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 um, but it's even more than that. When Audrey did her paper, which I think is in BMC Open or BMJ Open. Yeah, BMJ Open 2020, yeah. She has a, a Euler diagram which shows the evolution. And you literally see, you know, some things gain popularity over years and then fade away. There's entirely novel concepts that pop up. And it is a, it's a living thing. I mean, language is alive. And this language is shifting and shape-shifting. Why does I think that matters? Where people come up to me and said, you know, back in 2015, you were a great skeptic of precision oncology. Look at you wrong. Now it's working. And then I say, you've literally changed the definition. We were talking about something different back then. I was always a critic that everybody, when they progress on every drug, could undergo sequencing and you come up with some novel cocktail that benefits them. And I remain yet to be proved that that actually benefits them versus just picking a salvage drug based on, you know, phase two study and yeah. in, uh, based on what's been tried and true in that cancer. There's an interesting part you're talking about here is the super responders <coughs> and anecdotes. Yeah. You already talk, I think we already talked about that in previous chapters, but <coughs> can you maybe, uh, you, you did two work on that space and yeah. I think it was really interesting and Recently, the, where the iceberg plot uh, oh, yeah, was, yeah. It was a bit on the same topic, but can you just explain what is super responder, what you find when you study these reports? So the first report was with uh, Andre Van Ross, and you find 32 super responders, and you study the literature, what data were present or no, and actually you find that uh, in 20% uh, of cases, there were no data on the previous therapy right. the patient had received. And I think that's very important. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can expand on that about the biology of the tumor. Yeah. So I think uh, one justification for that every, you know, this idea that everybody should be sequenced after they progress on approved drugs and get some cocktail is that every so often when you do that, you have a quote unquote super responder. These are people who they've gotten a bunch of approved therapy. Now we finally learned that they have activating mutations in, or inactivating mutations in TSC1 or something like that. And we give them an mTOR inhibitor and they do super, super well. They do much better than you'd expect. It's the seventh drug they get, but they do really well on this drug. And this idea of super responders was, you know, very sexy. It gained a lot of prominence. It was the substance of science papers. And, you know, what we did was what I often do as a meta-researcher, which is sort of an umbrella overview of everything available. First, Andre and I, we did a literature review of every single super responder case that had ever been documented at the time, which is now seven years ago. So uh, since then, the literature has exploded. A few years later, uh, Jia Lu, who's now at the Dana-Farber, Go Nishikawa, who's now in Minnesota, Emong fellow, and myself, we, we updated this with hundreds of cases. But basically, we said, let's just collect everybody who's ever reported a case that they believe the person did super, super good on a super new drug. Okay, let's make all those cases. 
the first question I want to know when I think about somebody who you're telling me they've done super well is how well did they do with the last drug? Is this the kind of person who did really, really well with all the drugs they've been treated and they're still doing well with all the drugs? Is their tumor indolent or pan-sensitive biology? Or is this the kind of person whose tumors were rip-roaring, progressive, and now finally they're doing well? And I remember one case I read early on that made me think about this. It was a woman with anaplastic thyroid cancer. And I think she had uh, a ROS1 alteration or something like that. She got crizotinib. She did well. She took it for like six months. And I said, you know what? In anaplastic thyroid cancer, you don't see a lot of durations of treatments in relapse anaplastic thyroid cancer of six months. It's very rare. The median survival is four months with that disease. But then I looked at the person's case report and I saw that before they got this novel drug, they had had anaplastic thyroid cancer for two years. They were already at the 99th percentile of biology. Who put them there? Not the person who gave the drug, but you know, it was God or you know nature put them there. They're, you know, they were already the, the, there. The, the nature of the disease, in a sense, yeah, uh, is different for this patient than other patients. Yeah. They were not the average anaplastic thyroid cancer, and so they were probably going to respond well to whatever you were to give them. And so, so anyway, so we did this paper. Yeah, in this paper, yeah. in the ab updated paper, you find that the median duration of treatment was 14 months. Which is good. But the median of the previous therapy yeah. was eight months, uh -huh. which is also good. Which is also good. And, and you apply the Vonov criteria. Maybe you can uh, talk about that. Yeah. And when you apply this criteria, it was less than half patient that met this criteria. Yeah, and, and I think that the median of the medians is a mix of true super responder cases and flimsy ones. And so that's why it actually kind of looks better than what you'd expect. But the flimsy ones was like, they were doing really well, really well. And it's just the, the, DO, the DO duration of treatment shrinking. What is a Von Hoff thing? Daniel Von Hoff had, you know, many sort of innovative things in oncology. One thing he had was the idea that for you to say you did super well on a new drug, your PFS on that new drug has to be at least 1.3 times better than your most recent PFS. If it was just the same as your prior PFS, that's not as impressive. Um, if it was 1.3 times better, it's a modest threshold. You know, if it was three times better or four times better, that's great. But 1.3 times it said is a modest benchmark. And we found about 50% of super responder stories could not even clear the Von Hoff threshold. And then the last point I wanna make is, you wanna talk about Fermi estimates or? Oh yeah, yeah you can. <clears throat> well, I got very interested in this and in, in the weeds and I don't know if listeners will be interested, but here's the gist of it. Um, you know, for many years, consulting firms asked the candidates a question that was very difficult to answer in a consulting interview. One such question was, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? And the person answering that question has to make a guess, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? But, you know, how are they going to get to this number? And the answer is a very simple way to estimate something that you may not initially feel like you know the answer to is to estimate what you do know, round it to the nearest 10 to the power of, and then do some math. So what might you say is you might say, oh, you know, there's like 8 million or 10 million people in Chicago, you know, uh, 10 to the power of 8. You know, uh, there's, um, you know, so many people who have a piano. Piano's got to tune so often. And round everything the nearest 10 to the power of and do the math. And then you might say something like, oh, you know, by dividing all these numbers, it comes to roughly, you know, there's 1,000 piano tuners or 100 piano tuners, like the nearest order of magnitude for how many piano tuners there are in Chicago. And I forget what it works out to. Um, but it turns out that it's actually quite close to the real number. And this was named after Enrico Fermi. Uh, and it's called the Fermi estimate, where you round everything in the nearest 10 to the power of, and suddenly you can make a, a pretty decent estimate of this concept that you initially may not feel like you know that much to. Because sometimes you round down and sometimes you round up, and these kind of biases cross cancel each mm. other out. And what I sought to do with the super responder thing was make that same point, which is that we do have some sense of the denominator, how many people have undergone um, broad NGS sequencing. And at the time of our studies, we're talking about 100,000, 200,000 yeah. people. Yeah. And we also know how many super responder cases we find in the biomedical literature in Google Scholar, which is a very in-depth um, citation database, and it was 200-ish. So that leads me to believe that super responders occur roughly one in a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably pretty yeah, right. You, you know that. Yeah, I remember. It was very interesting. How, how did you get interested in, in this uh, kind of estimate? I think sometimes you watch random YouTube videos yeah. and you learn something, or you read some random books and you learn something. So maybe to conclude on this topic and uh, maybe we didn't talk about that. Why, why is it, is it, a, is it, off, is it frequent that we talk about precision oncology? Is it a 
are there a lot of funding are there a lot of trials i mean is it frequent is it uh, uh, very often you encounter that in your practice or it's uh, it's not so frequent i mean uh, i think yeah. if you recall like when the book was written the hottest thing under the sun was precision oncology you know it felt like every paper in nature medicine was about precision oncology and sequencing i think the last few years and the pandemic has taken the steam out of these precision oncologists mm. you know they've they've shown the limits of what they've been able to achieve the 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 interest has moved heavily to CAR T therapy yeah. which i talk a lot of, a little bit about in the book because yeah. we just had tisagenic lucil when i wrote it but CAR T is getting a lot of the attention also maybe other drug like Check, uh, antibody drug conjugate antibody drug conjugate is getting attention yeah. with trastuzumab duroxetiken um but back in these days and this was i think the i mean we should for, we shouldn't forget this was the peak of baselga Baselga was the mm. physician in chief of Sloan Kettering. Baselga yeah. took massive resources to have the MSKCC impact. He was sequencing everybody and he was defending it. And of course, you know, um, I think the year the book was written was when David Hyman and I debated each other at AACR. Baselga was the moderator. Yeah. It's quite a fun time. Can you recall it? Uh, yeah, I recall. Uh, I remember some shouting was there. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'd say, you know, um, it was uh, something that doesn't happen too often these days. It was a good old fashioned debate. Uh, the debate was, um, uh, I forget the exact proposition, but, um, oh, precision oncology is more hope than hype or hype than hope or something like that. David Hyman, who's now, I think, the chief medical officer at Loxo and Lilly, um, you know, but back then he was the section chief of phase one at uh, MSKCC. He debated the side that there's more hope than there is hype, and I think I debated the opposite side. Unbeknownst to David Hyman, in the weeks preceding the debate, John Markhart and I worked very, very hard to write an article about estimating the upper bound benefit of genome-driven cancer therapies, which we published in Jam Oncology. And we timed the publication of the article the moment the debate was to take place, which was kind of a, a little showman trump card that I had at, at the time of the debate. Um, David made his argument. I made my argument. My argument ended with this kind of, uh, and by the way, we've quantified it, and it's actually 8.3%, mm. which is quite low. Ergo, I'm correct. There's more mm. objectively, numerically, hype than hope. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, Jose, uh, you know, he, uh, he, was, uh, he was quite taken aback. <laughs> yeah. And he had a lot to say. But you know what? As much as um, he was a passionate guy, and, uh, and as often as his temper got the best of him, um, you know, I do miss the time not that long ago where you could go to a conference and have a really heated debate. Mm. And now, mm. as we see elsewhere, which I won't get into, but you see... You know, people are protesting speakers who only 97% mm, agree with mm. them. You see, nobody wants to debate anything. Mm. We, they all want, you know, we'll just have people who agree mm. on this issue. Mm. There's a series in oncology called The Great Debates, but they get people on both sides who always agree, mm. you know? And so I guess for all the limits and faults of a really heated, passionate debate, wouldn't you, the audience, by the way, you out there, you go to this conference, you know how boring it is. Wouldn't you rather hear a heated debate than what they're giving right now? The content is boring. I have almost fallen asleep in some of these oral sessions. It's so boring. I would pay money to see somebody make it have some spice. And there's a lot of spice because there's a lot of things in medicine that are unclear. Yeah. And there's a lot of gray zone. I mean, there's a lot of place where you can debate honestly and you don't have the correct answer. You're not sure you have the correct answer. Absolutely. To conclude, yeah. um, you give the example how, to, how you would assess if this uh, definition of precision oncology, we talk about the, the last definition, um, how, would you, how would you assess its if it's efficient or no? And you give the example of um, two type of uh, trials. Yeah. I think uh, people <laughs> won't be surprised that uh, you, will, you would want a randomized clinical Yeah, of trial. course. I think at these days, nobody's surprised I want a randomized trial. I mean, I, I think maybe it's worth pointing out, like, why do I want randomized trials? I hope by at this point, when you've read the book this far, and the reason that I make a nod to autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer is you do, I hope, understand why you need randomized trials. We have been misled over and over and over again into doing things that are invasive, costly, harmful, that make us feel like we're helping the patient that did no such thing when we don't do randomized studies, when we allow ourselves to be seduced by historical benchmarks and comparisons like this. They're always often misleading. And yet, we never learn why do we not learn? Because I guess to some degree, you know, it's easy to make a lot of careers off uncontrolled studies. Um, soon on this podcast, I'm going to, I'm going to do, uh, I just talk about a study that is a, a phase two study of 60 people with lymphoma. Yeah. And they get all this treatment up front and all this treatment. Smart. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a smart start. And, and, and one of the points I'm going to make is that, you know, we had had the phase one study done. You, we have dose-escalated LEND. We, it didn't meet DLT. That's Wyndham study. Hmm. Now, randomize or, you know, shut up. I mean, the next question is not, what's the response rate? You know that a response rate in an uncontrolled lymphoma study, it doesn't matter what it is. You'll have no idea if it's better or worse than what you're doing because Rick Fisher in 93, um, you know, because promacitabomb once upon a time looked better than CHOP. We'll be talking about that in a future chapter. chapter. Okay. Yeah. So, like, we know you can't benchmark these things. We know the only way to know if it's better than what you're doing is to randomize. And similarly, similarly, there are so many biases that happen in observational studies of precision oncology. Yeah. You're not referring... Um, the person with explosive tumors to being sequenced. They can't wait. You're not referring the poorer person, the person in community practice. You're having huge quaternary referral indolent biology bias. You're giving all the sequencing. They have to live long enough to wait for the result, to wait for the molecular tumor board. And and you can't adjust for. And you can't adjust yeah. for that. You I mean, can't find a control yeah. that's equivalent with the same um, hardwired biases in it. And for that, you need randomization. You also know the effect size isn't a light switch. It's not like it's, it's not dostarlamab, which is different, where the people appear to be cured. It's not. And proof of that is that in that paper that, we pub that I published uh, in the Annals of Oncology calling for a randomized control trial, I did the power calculation from their own observational studies, mm. and the hazard ratio that their observational uh, yeah, studies generate yeah. is 0.65, yeah. meaning it's a very modest you know, four-month improvement. Yeah. That's what the observational literature would have you believe. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so basically what I'm saying is you do a randomized trial. There's two different broad strategies. One, you sequence everyone, and then you randomize them to a matched therapy or a, a, a therapy picked the old-fashioned way. Or you randomize them to be sequenced or not sequenced and test does the routine application of sequencing improve outcomes. I actually favor that. That's really a test of what CMS is paying for. Should CMS pay for everyone to get sequenced? Let's randomize them to doing it or not doing it, 1,000 people in each arm, you get the answer. Instead, CMS has spent 2 billion, 2 billion, 2 billion, 2 billion, 2 billion, 2 billion, I think now six years of $2 billion of spending. They've spent $12 billion, and they don't know the answer if that's actually generating uh, a return on investment for the beneficiaries of Medicare, um, which is, in part, they are violating their own statutory authority, which is that they have an obligation to show ben uh, to to do things in the interest of Medicare beneficiaries, not the companies that lobby them. Um, and they could have pushed for a randomized trial; they had mm. the authority, mm. and they did with aducanumab. Mm. Actually, mm. this was a, this would have been something great. You know, I wrote an article that they should have done what they did for aducanumab four years ago. Um, so, what's my point here? The broader point. The broader point is in oncology, as elsewhere in medicine. You want to do things that make people better, and you don't want to do things that don't work, that make you think, that, that, that deceive you into thinking. Human beings are easily deceived because we're optimistic creatures and, we, and hope springs eternal. The only way to separate you fooling yourself from a real effect, when the effect is at best modest or marginal, which by the way, that's oncology, that's our business, is randomization. And you know, you don't need expand you don't need smart start doc benchmarking a response rate you you've you've sorted out the dosing um you can launch randomized control trials i think it's a it's a very very important point maybe even more important than when you wrote malignant yeah <clears throat> we can feel in many in many instances that randomized clinical trials are on the um, decline yeah, yeah yeah many criticism and and i start to worry about that i yeah. mean I see yep. that. I see. Yep. I mean, obviously, listeners of this podcast will know there are a number of non-oncology issues that I have been a vocal spokesperson mm. that we need randomization. Mm. I think, you know, maybe right now those views divide people, but in ten years, in fifteen years, when people sober up and think about what we did, they will all agree. How could we have done things year after year, affecting millions of people? Mm. Not even try to do the one study design mm. that you know is reliable, mm. and instead rely on just garbage observational after garbage observational. Which I've, you know, I have a whole Substack just documenting bad observational stuff. And what I, I do think is, it's very different than before, and this is what scares me. In my career in, a, in medicine, which now is, you know, how many years have I been doing this? 15, uh, 15, 17 years. 17 years I've been in medicine, and maybe 15 of those 17 I've really been in it. Like I've been really invested in reading and reading and thinking about it. And in 15 years, there used to be a force that opposed randomized control trials. 
and they were typically for-profit biopharmaceutical companies that did not want those trials to threaten their market share. But you would get the allegiance of the people who care about justice and people who care about cost conscious. You get there, you get those people on your side that we need to do these studies. But the pandemic, I think, has changed a little bit. And now a lot of those people, they think they know the answer. And the reason is that a lot of the questions that they view as pandemic questions are no longer scientific questions, they're moral questions. We know this, quote unquote, saves lives. We don't, but that's the problem. But they think it does, and only a bad person would not want to do this. And they're moving to the side that, ergo, you cannot test it. And that to me is very dangerous because when you get the biopharmaceutical industry and the people who care about justice and equality on the same side against randomized controlled trials, there ain't anyone left on the other side who's going to be able to push back. And I do think you see with legislation that we are moving against randomized studies, um, uh, which is really bad. We're going to be yeah. as dumb as we've yeah. ever been. Concerning. That leads me to maybe the last question. Okay. Broad broad thoughts about social forces. I mean, the, the part two is ended now. It was social forces yeah. in oncology. That any, any other thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, the first part of the book opens up by showing you that the outcomes for cancer patients aren't as good as you think. And all these new sexy drugs aren't as great as you think. And I think, you know, I don't want to mean my book is, is, is in no way similar to any other cancer book out there. I think there's lots of cancer books about the art and practice of oncology. This is not that book. There's also books about the history of oncology that are beautifully written. This is not that book. This is about oncology policy, the real things that we have to think about day in, day out. And, and I think some of the history books that were very popular in oncology do provide a false idea about the field. They get into hero worship. They, they make it seem as if it's a series of inexorable progress. Mm. There are a few setbacks, mm. but we're, you know, we're heroes solving these things all the time. And I don't think that's quite accurate. I think it's a naive sort of, um, uh, a f sort of a, a fresh-eyed look that's a naive look of the field. I think the truth about oncology is we spend inordinate amounts of money. We do have some success, but we have a lot of mediocrity, a lot of failure. So that's the first part is to really show you what that looks like. The second part is to show you the deep social forces, how the money flows. Because so many things in life you really want to understand, as a, as a, as a, as a wise man once told me, when I really wanted to understand how the university worked, I oh, radio-labeled yeah. a, radio a dollar bill. Was Alan Vinuk? That was Alan yeah. Vinuk on this yeah. podcast, yeah. Um, which is that when you really want to understand why people do what they do, follow the money, because that really gets at it. And so in this, these couple chapters, I've tried to take you through the money. And then the next section, which I think is probably the section that's most important for trainees, where we talk about medical evidence and how to assess it. Not only trainees. Yeah, also some senior people who have forgotten or may never have learned. Uh, 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 you'll ask yourself, oh, this is, uh, you know, how often, you were just talking recently to a first-year medical student, and, and they were like, well, you know, it's obvious like that you would want to oh, do yeah, this yeah, one. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because I was uh, just explaining a concept. Uh, we will talk about that, I hope, in a future paper yeah. we, we have. But um, it's a concept that is very, very often misunderstood in the by honestly, by, by, by our colleagues. Yes. And you get it. And I was so... Very quick. Yeah. And I was just teaching some interns and um, I was presenting this thing on Crossover and they just instantly got it. Like, oh, no, actually there, you've already established a standard of care, so you have to cross over. And here, it's a test of fundamental efficacy, so you wouldn't want to cross over. And I was like, yeah, you get it. I was like, you know, there are people who practice for 20 years in oncology, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. How do you get it? Why do you get it? Because to some degree, it is actually logical and obvious. So how can smart people no longer see the logic and obviousness? And the answer is part two. That's really how they've forgotten. Like, how can you be blind to your own nose, you know, in the mirror? And it's, you know, it's the financial bias. Okay, so thank you very much for doing that. Um, I don't know if you a have good discussion. some no. final thoughts. And final thoughts? No, we're working our way through the book. Listeners yeah. can go back. There's a playlist on YouTube that just has these episodes. Yeah. Um, if you watch on YouTube, you'll get to see our smiling faces. If you listen on the audio feed, uh, you don't, but that's okay. There were no visuals this time. Uh, you, can, you can buy the book? You can buy the book, yeah. You know, you can buy the audio book, which yeah. is narrated by me. And now we finally fixed that problem of all the... Chapter 11? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was dreaming. Initially, I remember, yeah, I there remember. was an uncut, an uncut version was put out uh, by mistake. We fixed it. Um, you can listen to the audiobook. You can read the audiobook. Or you can read the book. Um, if you're going into Hemong Fellowship... I think you should I, I really absolutely have read this book. 
even if you disagree with everything in it, yeah, at least yeah, it will I frame mean, why people are I talking mean, about what they're talking th about. That's the beauty also of the of the of this space. There are many things you can disagree on, but that's not problematic. You can, you can discuss, you can talk, you can push back. I mean, we are doing that all the time. I mean, with colleagues, yeah. we we're, often we agree, but but we can disagree. That's okay. I mean, uh, that's the beauty of this. Uh, yeah, that's the this. beauty of it, and. Uh, you know, I always like to learn from the people I disagree with because that's where I get the real ideas. So on that positive note. On that positive note, thank you, Vinay. And see you soon for next chapters. Until next time.